So hi, I'm Phil Harvey from the University of Miami, and what we do in our research is we study everyday functioning and cognition in people with severe mental illness. And what we have been doing for the last few years is using technology-based solutions to try to augment outcomes in people with severe mental illness. In contrast to the resources that you have here in LA County, in, in Florida, we are the 49th out of 50th state in terms of mental health funding. So for example, at our public sector mental health uh, hospital, Jackson Memorial, which has 150% of the emergency room visits of Bellevue and 66% of the staff, the formulary budget per patient is $1,000 a year. And a single injection of, of paliperidone and palmitate costs $3,000. So the, the math doesn't add up. So what, we've, so what we've been working on is developing technology-based solutions that can be delivered by non-professional trainers in group settings. So I'm going to give you some background first. And then what we've also done is we have worked on the, the, the deployment of neuropsychological and functional capacity assessments using technology as well. So you don't need a neuropsychologist to do a neuropsych assessment because you have an app-based neuropsych test that can be delivered by anyone. And I'm going to show you how all that works. But let's start with a little bit of background. First of all, I, I do consult for the pharma and device industry, but this is on uh, drug development. I don't do promotional presentations. I have not done that in years. I, I work helping people design outcomes measures for clinical trials aimed at enhancing cognition and clinical outcome in people with severe mental illness. So everyday disability and schizophrenia is predicted by a, a sort of an array of factors, cognitive impairment, negative symptoms, social cognition, but also uh, aggressive behavior and impairments in functional capacity. So in a sense, what you need in order to have successful interventions is you need to be hitting a bunch of targets at the same time, which makes it seem like it's a, a really large scale challenge, which it is, but we're making a little progress in that regard. Uh, disability is also common and substantial in bipolar disorder as well. I'm not going to differentiate between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in a lot of the, uh, the stuff we talk about today because uh, probably the factor structure of cognition and functioning is the same in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and I'll show that to you. And we, in a very large study of veterans, have just shown that the genomic architecture for cognitive impairment is the same in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and is separable from the genes that are associated with susceptibility. That's a whole other topic, but let's just say that you can effectively treat cognition and disability in the two conditions, probably with the same kind of interventions. So these are the rates of real-world functional milestones across the board in people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. We know that outcomes are bad in people with schizophrenia, but what should be more scary is the fact that outcomes are not very good in people with bipolar disorder either. So what we're talking about is achievement of functional milestones occurs in 40% of people with bipolar disorder, which means it doesn't happen in 60%. And when you think about the fact that the premorbid IQ of people with bipolar disorder may be 105 to 110, in contrast to maybe 95 on average for people with schizophrenia, it looks like the outcome in bipolar illness relative to earlier, earlier life functioning may be worse than it is in schizophrenia. So that's why we're going to focus on both of these conditions when we talk about these interventions. Uh, in bipolar disorder, oops, sorry, what you see is that 
the bad outcome starts really early on. This study was done at McLean Hospital, which is widely acknowledged to be like the best psychiatric hospital in America. First episode patients uh, with a mixed or manic episode, and this is their three-year outcome. What you see is that at the end of the three years, uh, they've all recovered from their mixed or manic episode. Uh, about 80% of them have had a period of time when they were asymptomatic, but functional recovery happened in only 40% of those first episode patients. So this is the best hospital in the country. This is the first manic episode, and only 40% of the people who are treated there actually go back to functioning afterwards. So disability in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia is something that starts really early on, at or before the first identifiable episode. So early intervention programs are critical. Early treatment strategies are critical. Uh, but if you don't get there till later, it doesn't mean you miss the bus because it looks like the bad outcome starts fairly early on. So if, you, if, you haven't, if someone gets an intervention 10 years after their illness has started, it is unclear if their outcome is actually worsened during that 10-year period or not. So we, we also tend to focus on treating everybody, right? Like John Sharon was talking about before, you know, this is like the fourth level of impairment. You've got the fully developed illness and you've got the fully developed disability and you got what you got and we're going to try to jump in and change it. We, we are going to try to treat you as you are and not try to worry that we, we can't go back in time and change something that already happened. Further, Cognitive performance in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder has essentially the same signature. So although people have focused on the fact that cognitive impairment is different in mood disorders than in people with schizophrenia, it turns out these are first episode patients who have clinically recovered. And as you see, there's a difference in the magnitude of their impairment, which is directly proportional to the differences in their pre-illness academic functioning. So what we're seeing here is that the acquired signature of impairment in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder looks pretty much the same. The level of severity is different. And there are abilities in both of these conditions that are performed completely normally. So it is uh, basically what you're seeing is a discrepancy between across ability areas, a discrepancy in severity, but not the types of impairment between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. One of the things that we've been doing is identifying the functional skills that are required to live autonomously in the community. There's an assessment measure called the UCSD Performance-Based Skills Assessment. It's a seven-minute assessment of functional skills. And what we see in this study is this is a mixed sample of people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And what you see is the better you do on the UPSA, the more likely you are to be the head of the household or at least live in the community. And if you've got more impairments, you're more likely to be in supportive living and the effective diagnosis is essentially zero. People with bipolar disorder had better scores on the IPSA, they had better community outcomes, but the only predictor of how they were doing in the community, their residential status, was their ability to perform these critical life skills. So now that we see that life skill deficits are directly linked to not being able to live independently, we now have treatment targets, because now we know that life skills are something that you can identify and intervene on, whereas cognitive impairment is something that you know, is a little more challenging. We have some strategies, but, we, but by identifying a direct path between functioning that you can measure in the office and living in the real world, you can identify treatment targets. And it turns out that in this study, the predictors of being able to function independently in the community were the same in people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. 
and it was all about the ability to perform those critical functional skills. So at this point, what we're seeing is we've got a target. Cognitive impairment largely exerts its influence through its correlation with adaptive fun with functional skills deficits. So cognitive impairments make it hard to do the skills that you need to live independently in the community. So if you can improve the skills without enhancing cognition, then theoretically you could improve outcomes. Or if you could improve cognition, which could then cascade forward to improve the functional skills, that might have an impact too. And I'm going to show you some data about a couple treatment studies we did that targeted those things. The UCSD Performance-Based Skills Assessment, the UPSA. Uh, it's actually a measure that's endorsed by the FDA as a co-primary measure in cognitive enhancement treatment trials. So it, it has some pretty good validity. Uh, and the short version of it is in the public domain and takes seven minutes to administer. So I, I think it's seven minutes well spent when you look at that uh, predictive power that you get from that. Uh, so what we have done is in order to broaden the reach of uh, assessment of cognition and functional capacity, we have developed computerized app-based assessments of cognition and capacity. Uh, one is based on the BACS, the Brief Assessment of Cognition and Schizophrenia, which is a 20-minute assessment of cognition that correlates very highly with very long neuropsych batteries, hits all the critical domains that you see in schizophrenia, episodic memory, processing speed, things like that does not have to be administered by a neuropsychologist, even in the paper and pencil version. But in the app-based version, the test basically uh, administers itself. Uh, and let me show you how it works. So the, the person who's being tested is facing an iPad screen. And so the test on the left is the Tower of London. It's a classic executive functioning test. And you tell the, the task here is how many moves would it take to make the picture on, to, to make A look like B. So what you have to do is you have to move the balls around in your mind. And you respond with, how many moves does it take to get from A to B? Uh, the test has been shown to actually activate the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in the same way that the Wisconsin card sorting test does. So it's a very nice measure. And then in the symbol coding test, classically, Coding tests like a digit symbol or things like that are the single best predictor of outcome in people with severe mental illness. They're also the single best predictor of composite cognitive performance, and they take 90 seconds to administer. So you can account for 70% of the variance in a six-hour neuropsych battery in 90 seconds. And using the back app, you can have the patient essentially test themselves to do it because the app reads all the instructions, records all the responses, provides feedback when you make mistakes during the training period, and then uploads the data into an analyzable database that you can download afterwards. So what this has done is it has taken neuropsych assessment uh, out of the hands of people who want to have it be all mysterious and into the hands of anyone who can turn on the iPad and push the right buttons. And so what happens is, uh, the other thing that's appealing about this is neuropsych tests are really expensive. The matrix consensus cognitive battery, which is the endorsed assessment to measure outcome in, in cognitive enhancement clinical trials, it costs $2,500 to buy the testing materials, and it costs $25 for the paper forms for every time you test someone, and you still got to be tested by a psychologist who scores the stuff, and then you got to enter the data. 
the back app costs $15 in assessment and delivers you a scored profile afterwards. So this is where technology is going to make it a lot more accessible to do neuropsych testing. You can do testing with the back app in the field. You don't need an office. You don't need uh, other complicated equipment. It tests on an iPad. Uh, so the correlation between the paper and pencil version and the app version is uh, about 0.9. So what happens is you also capture the outliers as well. So the correlation between healthy people, the paper and pencil version and the computer version is 0.9. Same thing with the patients. And you notice that the outliers are captured at both ends with both versions. So you basically get the same score using the app as you do the paper and pencil version. And so the other thing that's important to do is to have a computerized assessment of functional capacity as well. The UPSA is a great test, but unfortunately, it was developed in 2001. So tell me some things that you used to do in 2001 that you don't do anymore. Writing a check, right? Calling directory assistance, right? So a couple of the items on the back app are items that people who are under 30 have never done before, right? So people have, don't write checks. People don't call directory assistance. People don't know what 411 is anymore. People don't even remember phone numbers. So the problem is that a number of the items that are really highly discriminating for 55-year-old people with schizophrenia don't do a thing for you if you're under 30. So the idea is you need to develop an assessment that is more valid and instantly updatable. And that's one of the things that we tried to do with this test called the, the VervCat, the Virtual Reality Functional Capacity Assessment Test. So what you do in the VervCat, it's also administered on the iPad, you're in your apartment and you're told you're having some friends over for dinner and here's a recipe. Uh, we need you to look in your apartment and see what you got and figure out what you don't have and then you go to the grocery store and you buy the stuff that you need. So you, look, you, you operate around in your apartment, you look and see what you've got, then you go downstairs and you catch the bus and you go to the grocery store. When you go to the grocery store, you go around in the grocery store and you find the things that you need and you buy them. Then you go to the cash register, you check out, you go back on the bus and you go home. And so what we do is we go from scene to scene solving problems one after another, supermarket, uh, all right? And then you see that it, there are 12 different objectives, and none of these things are outdated, right? You pick up the list, you look in your cabinets, you check your wallet to make sure you've got money, you catch the right bus, you go to the supermarket, you buy the stuff that you're supposed to buy, not a bunch of other stuff. You pay for it, you get on the bus, and you go home. And the outcome measure in this is just like many neuropsych tests, like trail making or symbol coding, it's how long does it take you to get the job done? And it's a very robust measure. Uh, it separates very nicely between healthy people and people with severe mental illness. It also is sensitive to age effects. And it's also sensitive to mild cognitive impairment as well. And so a final thing that we have done is we have developed some realistic simulations of everyday functional tasks that involve technology. So it turns out that nowadays, many functional uh, tasks involve the ability to operate with technology one way or another. Nowadays, if you're a veteran, or someone who receives social security disability compensation, or a healthy older person, 
There's no such thing as a social security check anymore. There's no check to cash. You have to have a bank account, which means that if you have to have a bank account, that means you have to know how to operate it. You need to operate an ATM. You need to be able to do internet banking, right? You need to check your balances. And for people who have prescriptions, you also have to be able to manage and refill your prescriptions. At RVA a year ago, they just announced that starting in 30 days, no more paper prescriptions. Just go online and refill your prescriptions without considering the fact that if you're a veteran living in a homeless shelter taking medication, you might not have a computer to go online with. Uh, and in the jail diversion program that we interact with in, in Miami, run by Judge Steve Leifman, who's a, who just won the NAMI Hero Award, we've discovered that many of the people who get diverted for shoplifting at 7-Eleven have between five dollars and $10,000 in the bank because they got a VA disability or a social security disability, but they don't have an ATM card, and they don't know how to get one, and so they don't have any way to get any money out of the bank. So what we're focusing on is these technology-based functional skills that are critical for everyday life and are sort of like a, a prerequisite for other elements of functioning. If you go to IPS and job training and you get a job, all of a sudden you're going you're gonna to have money. Right? And you're going to need a bank account, and you're going to need to be able to figure out how to manage that money. And if you can't do it, then the job's not going to last long because you're not going to be able to get to work because you're not going to be able to get money, or you're not going to be able to buy a transit ticket because you don't know how to do it. And so we've focused on that stuff. And so basically, what has been discovered in the field out there is that computerized cognitive training in people with severe mental illness is actually really good at improving cognition. But if I gave you 15, other IQ, 15 additional IQ points and you'd never touched a piano before, you wouldn't be able to play the piano just because your IQ went up by 15 points. And just because your IQ goes up by 15 points, if you've never been to the bank before, you're not automatically going to understand how to do banking or transit or stuff like that. So there have been a number of very interesting studies showing uh, examining the combination of, of skills training plus computerized cognitive training. So how do you define cognitive training? I mean, it's widely, uh, widely discussed. Computerized cognitive training has a couple of critical features. Uh, it's a systematic, structured attempt to teach you more and more complex cognitive skills that are more and more demanding, while at the same time, using dynamic difficulty titration. So for example, one of the things about playing regular video games is that often if you crash, they send you all the way back to the beginning and you have to go through all the stuff that you already know to work your way back up. What happens in computerized cognitive training is if you're having a good day, the program pushes you hard. If you're having a bad day, it steps back and adjusts the level of difficulty so no matter what level you're training at, you're getting about 80% correct. And it sort of works you forward by, by sort of cycling you up and down until you make that kind of progress. What's not cognitive training? Well, reading, playing Sudoku, standard video games, those things have been shown to not necessarily improve your cognition. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward, because you can train it any level of difficulty. So if you're trying to lift weights in the gym and you're only lifting two pounds and never increase your weight, you're not going to get any stronger. The same thing as if you 
do reading and you read the same book over and over again, you're not going to learn any new facts. Uh, you can continue to train even when your goals are met. Uh, the difficulty challenges are not dynamic. And there's really limited cognitive domains that are trained. Many of these games, like Sudoku, they measure long-term knowledge. And if you think back to that slide I showed you about abilities that are impaired versus preserved in people with severe mental illness, long-term knowledge storage is unimpaired. So playing Sudoku is not going to teach you anything new because it's just testing what you already know. You don't need to learn anything new to play Sudoku. So one of the things that has been shown to be really interesting in this regard is a, is a training model that's called useful field of view or double decision training. What it is, is it is speeded multitasking. Multitasking is an executive functioning, an executive function. You have to divide your, your concentration and your focus. Life is all about multitasking, especially nowadays. You, know, you have to be able to text and listen and do all, uh, lots of other things at the same time. UFOV uh, looks like this. Basically, what you see in the middle of the screen is there's a car or a truck. And that happens at the same time as a second stimulus shows up in the periphery. So the way it works with Brain HQ is it's car versus truck, and then there's a Route 66 sign that shows up somewhere in the periphery. They both come on at the same time. You answer, was it a car versus a truck, and where was the sign? When you start training, uh, the stimulus comes on for 750 milliseconds. So that's, that's a fairly long time. People, as they become proficient at double decision, uh, can, can often succeed at 75 or even down to 50 milliseconds, where it's so fast that you actually cannot really uh, uh, consciously perceive it, but your, your brain gets trained to be able to, to do it. And so what happens is, as you push people harder and harder, <coughs> you find that people make significant gains in this. And we're going to return to this in a minute and talk about the benefits. But in this cognitive training program here, which used UFOV among other cognitive training interventions, if you look at the top, you see that global cognition improved by 0.75 standard deviations. 0.75 standard deviations means that these people picked up 12 IQ points over the course of their training sessions, which lasted about 20 weeks, a couple times a day. But their everyday functioning was absolutely unimproved. So people made a very substantial cognitive gain that was not reflected in any real-world functional gains because they weren't getting any functional skills interventions at the same time. So there was nothing going on to sort of augment the cognitive training that they were getting. So we did a study where we randomized people with severe mental illness to receive computerized functional skills training with uh, excuse me, computerized cognitive training combined, paired with fake skills training, skills training paired with fake cognitive training, or the combined intervention of cognitive training plus skills training at the same time. So we were able to isolate what kind of gains you get and is there any crossover. If I teach you functional skills, does that improve your cognition? If I teach you cognition, does that make you better able to do functional skills tests that you got no training on? And what you see is this that for people who got computerized cognitive training, whether it was alone or in conjunction with skills training, they had the same level of cognitive gain that we saw in that other study that was completely independent of ours. If you got 
functional skills training, the functional adaptational skills training program, uh, with or without cognitive training, you improved on your, your ability to do the UPSA. However, there was no real-world functional gain in the patients who were treated with just cognitive remediation or just skills training, but the people who got both interventions improved in their skills, improved in their cognition, and their real-world functioning improved to a statistically significant extent during a 12-week period as noted by their case managers. The case managers knew everyone is getting functional, everyone's getting some kind of training. They didn't know what they were getting, and they saw that the people who were getting combined training were actually improving. That's, in, that's a three-month period, improving enough so your case manager says, yes, you're doing significantly better, was not a placebo effect. So the combination of the two seems to be required to get functional gains, and it doesn't take forever to get them. This is a 12-week intervention. One of the problems with really long-term interventions is if the, the client doesn't notice a change or the staff doesn't notice a change, people think this is just not worth it. Uh, here you're seeing a change in 12 weeks, and uh, I have another slide that shows that if you look back another 12 weeks later, that functional gain there is actually doubled. So the people who got the combined cognitive and functional skills training 12 weeks after the training was over had actually improved even more in their real world functioning. There was no catch up for the other groups. The people who got just skills training or just cognitive training had no functional gains in 24 weeks. And that ties into this next study here, which is really important because one of the things that's gonna happen here in this care system is that you guys are gonna be rolling out individualized placement and support, supported employment programs for people in the service system, which is really good because IPS is focused entirely on people getting and keeping a job. The problem with IPS is the success rate is about 20%, and it's an intensive, expensive intervention. So even people who are proponents of it will say that if you just gave the money to the, to the client, it might be a more cost-effective way of, of handling the money. But it turns out that there are ways where you can very easily make IPS work a lot better. This is a study of people who at the beginning of the trial had just had six months of IPS and hadn't got a job. So these are vocational rehabilitation non-responders. So these guys have had six months of training, they have not succeeded. They get randomized to either cogn computerized cognitive training or an augmented vocational rehabilitation program, and they get an intervention uh, for, the, for, the first six, uh, for the first six months. Then the intervention stops, and they follow the patients up for their, for their two-year period. So what you see is starting immediately. As soon as you get randomized to cognitive training, uh, on top of your continued IPS, you, you show a, a huge jump in your employment, both in terms of weeks employed and, uh, and the percentage of people who are employed. And then after the intervention stops, the gains are not only persistent, but they're accelerating. Because after all, what's the best cognitive training you can do? having a job, right? So once you get a job, or once you start to function, your gains solidify and consolidate, and this has been shown across multiple different studies with different populations. First episode patients, uh, even more chronic patients than these patients. What you see is that once you start to make functional gains, the outcome measures continue to accelerate forward. 
Because after all, once you start making functional gains, once you have some money, once you can improve your living situation, all your other opportunities come into place as well. And so the other things around you that aren't working when you've got no money and no job and no place to live start to improve and they support your outcome in this regard. So basically what happens is you, you need to ensure that people who are doing cognitive training, first of all, need the intervention, and second of all, are going to engage in it. Because one of the problems with computerized cognitive training, in contrast to pharmacological interventions, is that you actually have to exert effort to engage in it. And uh, in, a, in contrast to IPS, where you're out with your IPS job coach and you're going on interviews, you can be sitting in front of the computer and clicking away and not actually engaging in the treatment. And it has been shown that in several different studies that uh, a, a substantial proportion of the people who sign up for these clinical trials for cognitive enhancement training actually don't do the training while they're in the session. They're, they're not actually doing the task. They're not improving on the central train task. So in this study here, what we did was we looked at people with a variety of different psychiatric conditions who were, who were enrolled, newly enrolled into a rehabilitation program, and we measured their baseline cognitive performance, and then we gave them all computerized cognitive training. They were all getting rehabilitation interventions at the same time, and we looked at who got better with computerized cognitive training. And what you find is that people who already have completely intact cognitive performance, generally people with uh, bipolar disorder or major depression, don't make any training gains, even though they train just as hard. So you need to have a target limitation in order to benefit from training. It's not as common when you, when you screen people with severe mental illness, particularly people who are chronic, to find people who are not impaired, but it's worth doing the baseline assessment to start with. And then what we saw was that there was a very nice correlation between how hard you worked when you were training and what your gain was in untrained cognitive abilities. So the more progress you made per unit training session, which can be monitored session by session, how many levels do you make per training day? Correlates with the gains that you make. So what we're seeing is that using an easily checkable index that you can check starting day one, you can supervise your client's cognitive training remotely and identify the people who are exerting adequate effort and those who are not, and just give feedback to the ones who are not trying hard enough and they need to try a little harder if they want to get some functional gains. So it's an easily monitorable process that's directly correlated with the outcome. So the other thing that's really important and critical for our patients among others is social cognition, the ability to recognize emotions in others, to uh, infer other people's intentions, they call it theory of mind, emotion processing. And it turns out that there are several correlates of impaired social cognition in people with schizophrenia, the most important of which is actually risk for violent episodes. So misperceiving someone's intention, misperceiving someone's uh, affective display toward you is a risk factor, particularly in uh, clients with a history of violence in the past, for repeated violent episodes. So a couple of studies have just recently shown that you can roll out computerized social cognitive training in the same way that you can do computerized neurocognitive training and get results in the same time frame. So in this study here, you're just basically training people to recognize emotions, 
to perceive facial expressions. It works on the computer. The intervention program was developed by a guy named Simon Baron Cohen, who's a, a psychologist at Oxford who, who basically has pioneered the concept of the autism spectrum and social cognitive limitations. So what was found in this study, which was a study of very chronic patients, patients at Manhattan Psychiatric Center in New York City, the average length of current stay at the time that people were recruited into the study was 19 years. These people had been in the hospital for 20 years at the time they got the intervention program. And their effect size for cognitive gains was the same as I showed you in our ambulatory patients. Further, those patients were also more able to work at the hospital work program that they were engaged in. And some of them are actually getting discharged. We're actually working with them in their readiness for discharge program to deliver cognitive skills and social cognitive training to people who are about to make the transition from 20 years in the hospital to living in a community residence in Manhattan. I mean, that's a, that's a challenging transition. And the problem, of course, is that at Manhattan Psychiatric Center, once the door closes behind you, you're not going back. Because everyone who gets discharged from there is not replaced by someone else because they're downsizing and uh, looking to close the hospital. So you have one shot to succeed once you're discharged. Otherwise, you're going to be outside the long-term care system and in the, in the same situation that lots of people in LA County are in, which is that you used to be in the hospital, but there's no more hospital for you. And so the, they want to be very careful that they're discharging people who can make it. They can keep people there as long as they need to. They're under pressure to get the, the census down. But you know, they don't want to push people out the door prematurely because it's a one-way one trip. And so basically what you see is that uh, you get big improvements when you combine cognitive training and social cognitive training, both in neurocognition, emotion recognition, and uh, emotion identification. So it seems like training people in neurocognition helps them learn social cognitive skills. Uh, so it's an easy thing to do. The kind of intervention that you, the way you roll this stuff out is that these training sessions are only a couple times a week and they're relatively short. It's an hour, twice a week. That's the, uh, that's the dose that you need. You give it to people for 12 weeks and these are the outcomes that you're seeing. So this is a very important review paper uh, and study where they did an intervention with long-stay forensic inpatients at a state forensic psychiatric hospital in Georgia. And the problem with the forensic hospitals in Georgia is the same as you have here in California at the Department of State Hospitals. You got people who, if they weren't found not guilty by reason of insanity, would be doing life without parole in the, in the state prison. But since they're in the hospital and not the prison, you have to treat them like they're in the hospital. So you can't manage violence the way they do at San Quentin, which is they throw you in solitary and leave you there for two years. You actually have to interact with people. So the intervention was aimed at treating people using these same computerized cognitive and social cognitive uh, interventions. And what they found was that as you got these improvements in cognition and social cognition, you found corresponding reductions in both verbal and physical aggression. It's like if you get better able to recognize what someone's facial expression is or what infer their intention, you're not as likely to feel like you should attack them because you're being threatened because you realize that you're not. And the improvement was long. Uh, it, the, the improvement persisted for a year after the end of the intervention, just like everything else. If you're not getting in fights with people and, and getting disciplined all the time, all of a sudden you realize, well, this is a better way to live 
and there's no real return to the violent episodes. And so, just see. So, let's just spend the last five minutes before we discuss things for a while talking about what are the characteristics of a successful intervention to reduce disability. Cognitive training, social cognitive training, functional skills training, and real world exposure are, is the package that actually tends to work. You think of what IPS is. IPS is real world exposure. You talk about going on job interviews, you prepare a resume, and your job coach goes with you. And you go to the interview, and the, uh, the job coach interviews with you. If you are unable to do the job when, you, when you're in the position, the job coach does your work for you. So what happens is you get your training, and you get your exposure at the same time, and that's what leads to the outcome. And I already showed you that if you, don't, if you add cognitive training onto that, the IPS intervention is actually much more effective. So let me show you how fast you can learn functional skills. We actually have an intervention program that teaches these, these functional skills uh, that I showed you previously. And we, we've done studies with people with schizophrenia and older people with mild cognitive impairment and healthy cognition. Two studies, uh, two tasks in the first study, the ATM, an ATM task and a refill task. All right, so the ATM, you have to identify the correct language, enter your PIN, check your balance, transfer money, withdraw cash, do all the other ATM tasks. The program actually gives you feedback when you make errors and it works you forward. Uh, it, it's a totally non-human trainer intervention because we've discovered both with people with severe mental illness and with older people, when they're learning technical skills, they don't want someone hovering over, they're much more comfortable if someone's not hovering over their shoulder giving them feedback. If they just sort of work their way forward with a device, it works better. Uh, refill, you gotta dial the number, you gotta select your options, you gotta put your prescription, you gotta put your numbers in, you gotta uh, choose your pickup time, everything that you do when you call Walgreens and refill your prescription. And so uh, what we did was we had healthy older people and older people with schizophrenia. This is time to completion in minutes at baseline and after training. 12 hours of training across the two tasks, less training if you mastered the tasks beforehand. So what we saw was that the healthy people were a little bit faster doing the task beforehand, but these are healthy people who have never refilled a prescription with a phone either. So it's a novel task to them as well. But what we saw was that with training, both groups doubled in their efficiency. The people with severe mental illness were just as good as the healthy older people at doing those tasks after they were, after they were trained to do them. And then we've expanded that into a study, a much larger study of healthy older people and uh, where half of the people are getting trained with Brain HQ, half are getting skills training alone. The intervention is designed to give you uh, 24 hours of training until we have six tasks now, uh, which involve a variety of levels of complexity, including some tasks that people say they don't, they don't think they ever want to do when they start the training, that all of a sudden they realize that it's not so hard to bank online, and going to Amazon.com is more fun than not going to Amazon.com. So we teach people how to do online shopping in these interventions. We teach them how to set up accounts, how to shop, how to fill up their shopping cart, how to select delivery options, and all that stuff. And so these are healthy controls, and this is time to completion again. Uh, ATM, internet banking, ticket purchase, 
medication organization, phone refill, internet refill. So what you're seeing is that, again, people are doubling in their efficiency over time. And these are healthy older, healthy older people, but here's a group that's really interesting. These people meet clinical criteria for mild cognitive impairment. Their MOCA scores are all under 20. So these are people who have episodic memory impairments that are significant enough, so they often don't remember having done the training after they've done it, but they're still learning these procedural skills. And interestingly enough, across our three studies, the schizophrenia study, the, the mild cognitive impairment study, and the older healthy controls, the proportionate gain per training session is the same for every population. People with schizophrenia, mild cognitive impairment, or healthy older people are getting 6% faster every training session that they do. And so they start at different levels, they wind up in different places, but the level of efficiency in training tends to be the same. And so you see these people with mild cognitive impairment, they would actually be able to go to the ATM and execute a, a couple of ATM tasks without holding up the show like they would have been beforehand, where it takes them a very long time to do the task. So we're very encouraged that these functional skills are actually making the transition. And so uh, essentially what we're suggesting is that uh, you would want to do cognitive and social cognitive training, two one-hour sessions a week, focus on tasks that actually work, like double decision from Brain HQ, which has shown to have benefits that are persistent for 10 years in healthy older people and to reduce your dementia risk by 35% with 10 hours of training. We also suggest that you split time between neurocognitive and social cognitive training. Uh, and the same thing with the CFAS interventions. Uh, what we, the, the tasks have intrinsically different levels of difficulty. So we start everybody on doing ATM banking and buying a transit ticket. We work our way up. If people absolutely insist that they don't want to learn how to do internet banking or internet shopping, we tell them, fine, you don't have to do it. So you can customize it. But what we have discovered is that people who are telling us at the beginning, when they never actually used an ATM before in their life, that they had no interest in internet banking, were quite interested in internet banking as soon as they had become able to actually operate an ATM in the real world. So I think what happens is by pairing these things together, and in our mild cognitive impairment study, half the people who participated got only 30 minutes of skills training and 30 minutes of cognitive training. So they made the same gains in half as much training time if they got cognitive training and skills training at the same time. However, skills training without cognitive training, you still made progress at the end of the day. But I think given the very positive side effects from doing computerized brain training, like reorganizing your white matter, improving your attentional networks, and reducing your risk for dementia, that's a side effect we'd like to get. Uh, and I think that if we can get the same functional gains in the same time, then I think that's a really viable strategy. Plus, the way we do our intervention is we have a room about this big. We train up to 16 people at the same time. And in order to demonstrate that you don't need to have a, a license as a psychologist, our trainer is an 87-year-old man who, uh, who basically, he's, he's sharp for 87. He's the guy who translated Positive Science Brain HQ into Spanish. But at the same time, he's able to train 12 to 16 people at the same time, half of whom have MCI and can't remember what they're supposed to be doing. So the idea is the actual skill and experience level on the part of the trainer is not that great. And so it's my belief that you could probably take people who are clients at the program and when they graduate from the training, they can graduate to being a trainer. 
And I think that that would be the plan, is that to have the IPS intervention be to train people to be mental health technicians to deliver effective computerized training solutions to people that don't require you know, uh, the billing level that you get from the UCA medical group. I mean, if you come to see me in my office at the University of Miami, they will send you a bill for $450. It's not going to be cost effective for me to be training people uh, doing computerized cognitive training. But if you can get someone who can train just as many people at the same time as me and is happy to do that for $18 an hour, then you are delivering mental health services that are functionally relevant at a price point that even the people in Florida can agree with. Because they're actually paying for us to do this in Florida now, which has the worst mental health services in the country. They are paying for these interventions in Judge Leifman's jail diversion program. So they're willing to spring for, for 20 bucks a month for a computerized functional skills training program. Because the other, the other thing to point out is the price point. Brain HQ costs $100 a year. It's a reassignable license. You can train four people for $100. Uh, try to find a prescription where you can refill it four times for $100 with your copayment. So the price point is there, and you really need the real world exposure. What we do with our older people is we encourage them to go out and do things, right? You learn how to do the ATM? Go out with your, go out with your spouse and go to the bank, right? Uh, even, if you're, even if you've never done it before, go with your wife, go to the bank and take some money out. Even if, even if you put it right back in afterwards, you know? Just operate the equipment. Everybody's got a computer at home. Go to the Walgreens website. Open up an account. Mess around online. You don't have to buy anything. You don't even have to give them your correct information. But you can, it's really easy to practice the stuff in the real world. If we can get peer specialists to go out on a stroll with the clients, we're in downtown Santa Monica, right? You've got banks everywhere. You've got a transit station now. You can walk over there and you can buy a transit ticket. LA is now, you know, 150 years later, right up there with New York in terms of public transportation, right? Ticket kiosk, you can buy a ticket. So all of these skills, you can practice in the real world. We teach people how to comprehend the information on their, their prescription labels. They can take their own pill bottles out and look at them, right? So the idea is it's not hard to make the transition to the real world here, and that's really what it's aimed at. It's really aimed at giving you the skills that you need, often performed at home by yourself, but really relevant to living autonomously. So I'm uh, but we, we were very surprised at the level of engagement we got from these healthy older people in doing this stuff. We were also, frankly, shocked at how little exposure these healthy older people, we were, we're in two places where we, where we did this intervention. One of them is Key Biscayne, the other one is uh, Coral Gables. These are both very affluent towns. Uh, one of the guys uh, actually uh, is recently a hedge fund owner, and he had never done internet banking before. Another guy had never used an ATM. He would get, have his driver take him in his Bentley, and he'd go to the bank, and he'd go in and cash a check. But then, uh, being frugal, despite having a Bentley, when they started charging him to cash his checks, he said, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to use an ATM. But we, we've, we've uh, at this point, trained uh, 100 people in Coral Gables and Key Biscayne, and now we're working in Liberty City in Miami. You, you may have heard of that. That's, uh, it's a... Uh, our, it's our poor neighborhood. It's very similar to some of the neighborhoods in, in, in South LA. And we're at a community center in Liberty City, and we've recruited 60 older African-American people who themselves have not performed as many technical skills. Interestingly enough, their level of exposure at entry into the training program is greater 
than the people in Key Biscayne and Coral Gables, because the people in Key Biscayne and Coral Gables have something to do their, someone to do their task for them. They got a driver who will take them to the bank. They got an assistant who will go cash a check for them. If you're sort of taking care of yourself, you may have had to figure some of this stuff out on your own, but many of these people are afraid to do internet banking or internet shopping because they're afraid that someone's going to steal their identity. Whereas it's probably just as likely they're going to steal your identity if you're going to an ATM or using a, a credit card at a gasoline station. So one of the things that we're, one of the modules that we're building uh, is we're building an iPhone app. So we're going to teach people, because you can do it on the screen, we're going to teach them how to download and install apps, how to call an Uber, and to do a, a variety of other things. Many people, older people who've got a smartphone, they just use it as like a telephone. They don't know anything about text messaging. They don't know anything about saving addresses so you can send a text, send an email, call someone at the same time. And so we're teaching pe people to do that. And we're working with Walgreens to develop an app so people can download it onto their, well, it's a, an app they can put on their computer first to learn how to download the Walgreens telephone app onto their smartphone. Uh, and then the idea is on the computer app, they're actually going to be able to manage their own medications at Walgreens in real time by pick, picking their own medications out, which will pop up and have their own name and medication information on it. So they'll be able to manage their medication, practice managing their medication online using their actual own virtual prescriptions. So uh, this is the kind of stuff that is very important. It's, technology is not going to go backwards. That's one thing I can promise you, is that you know, if, you, if you step off the train, it's, it's pulling out of the station behind you. And our clients need that too. They're the ones who can't avoid using technology. They don't have anyone to drive them to the bank. Right? They don't have anyone to give them any assistance of any kind. So teaching them how to be resourceful, even if it's teaching them how to use a telephone voice menu so they can get information, is a helpful thing, I think. All right, well, thanks, everyone. Nice to meet you. We're, uh, we're probably going to be launching, we're likely to be launching a demonstration project. Uh, it's Step Up on Second uh, within a couple months here. And we are very open with the support of John Sharon and the LA County Mental Health to uh, operate in other clinics if you're interested as well, as you see.